And welcome to it at uh, three minutes after one o'clock. Good to have you here with us. Skulls here along with James Fireman, Tamar Gopian as well. Courtesy, Sam Fio, Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You can reach out anytime you think, yeah, you know what? I don't feel like calling in today. It's cold. I don't know why that would matter. You're probably inside. But either way, you can reach these guys outside the hour of the show anytime. Always pleased to have a chat with you, right? one 821 5900 But here and now, you can call the show. We are live and ready to go on your Saturday afternoon. 416-872-1010. Again, 416-872-1010 to join the show via phone. Or you can send along your text questions at 71010 as well. And emails, which we will get a plenty, is help at disabilityrights.ca. But guys, we're going to uh, kick things off. Uh, 2023 back at her big time, James and tomorrow. Who's going first with the week that was guys. I'll, I'll take a shot here, John. So I, I think this is actually our fifth calendar year of the show is it on, really? on this fine network. I think wow. it is, but you know, new year, same great show, same great legal advice coming at you. So here's what I got for you. I have a mediation coming up and my client is a guy who has made his living by doing manual labor, heavy physical labor. And he's, he's a skilled laborer, but that's really how what he's done for the past 20 odd years. And he had a very significant back injury a few years ago. Fractured vertebrae in the spine, required fusion, and he applied for and was not surprisingly approved for LTD benefits. So that's as it should be. But of course, once you get up to that two-year mark, once you've been receiving the long-term disability benefits for two years, there is what is referred to as the change of definition. Mm -hmm. So after two years, the test for your disability benefits changes from whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing your own occupation to whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing any occupation. And so one of the things I often talk about is for people who are suffering from mental health disabilities, or at least primarily mental health disabilities, that isn't really such a significant difference because generally, not always, but generally, a mental health disability that is preventing you from doing one occupation is probably going to prevent you from doing most. There are exceptions, but generally that holds true. For physical disabilities, though, it can be a significant difference in the test. If you had a physical-oriented job, an occupation that required you to really use your body, and you have a physical injury, of course, that is going to be a barrier to working. And so during those first two years, it will often be sufficient to entitle you to benefits. But when you get to that change of definition, that when that's when it can get tricky. And so in this particular case, it wasn't something that you would have anticipated would have been an issue. And I say that because not only was this an injury that prevented him from doing any heavy physical work, but it prevented him from sitting for more than 10 or 15 minutes without significant pain. And so leaving aside the issues related to whether or not my client would be qualified for a sedentary job that would have paid him sufficiently to allow the insurer to cut him off, he still wasn't physically able to even do a sedentary job. You can't sit for more than 15 or 20 minutes. You're simply not going to be able to be employed in any occupation on a full-time basis. There's no way. Insurers will routinely suggest that you can get a sit-stand desk as though that's going to be the answer for someone who can't sit for more than 15 to 20 minutes at a time. Sure, that might be a solution to allow you to rotate once or twice, but 
talk to anybody who's in this position who has that kind of back injury that prevents them from sitting for more than 15 or 20 minutes. And they might be able to sit and stand and sit in that cycle, you know, once each or twice each, maybe if they're pushing it, but that's going to be about it. And after about an hour, hour and a half, they're done. And often for a couple of days as a result. And that certainly was true for my client. And so it wasn't something that you would have anticipated would have been a problem, but here's where it got dicey. So my client was someone who was actually in very good health before he got injured. And because of this injury and because of the surgery, he needed to seek much more frequent medical treatment than he ever had to before. In fact, he didn't even have a family doctor before. He's someone that wasn't using a family doctor. Maybe he ought to have, but he just never really had the need. If he had an issue to go to a walk-in clinic, no big deal. And so he had to get a family doctor at some point after he had this surgery. But this was in the middle of the pandemic. And so he's seeing his family doctor mostly virtually to get updates on his medication. His primary care for his back injury was still through the surgeon. So it wasn't really such a big deal for him to have a close relationship with this new GP. But here's where the problem came. When his insurer sent his GP forms to fill out before that change of definition at the two-year mark, it w there was a form included about his functional abilities. And one of the questions was his sitting tolerance. Now, my client, you know, his sitting tolerance had been consistently an issue for him all the way through, but it wasn't something that he had spent any time talking to his family doctor about. This is a doctor that he hadn't been treated with before, and he really wasn't the primary treating doctor for his back injury. And because he wasn't working, it wasn't required to maintain a particular posture, it just wasn't an issue that he raised with his family doctor. And so when his family doctor filled out the form, he didn't include anything about having a restriction from sitting. And of course, the insurer was well aware of this restriction from sitting. It was all over the medical records from his surgeon. It was talked about ad nauseum when they would call him, including just a couple of weeks prior to his GP filling it out. But of course, as soon as they get this from the GP, they're opportunistic. They jump all over and they say, oh, okay. You've got no sitting tolerance. So at the change of definition, we're cutting you off. So what can we learn from this? Well, number one, even though you may find it to be unnecessary in the medical sense, your family doctor needs to know all of the issues, even if there's another doctor who is primarily providing care for your particular injury. It is really important, probably in a medical sense as well, frankly, that your family doctor is at least aware of all of the issues that you're having. Not because your family doctor is going to interfere in any way, but it is very good to have one person who is aware of all of the different things that are an issue for you, all of the treatments you're having, all of the disabilities that are affecting your ability to function. So that is probably something that is a, a learning point for anybody out there. If you have someone other than your GP providing primary medical care, just make sure your GP knows what's going on. But also, you know, I say this for any medical providers that are out there, and this is an offer that we routinely will make, not just on this show, but to larger groups of medical professionals. We are available to provide insight, to answer questions, to speak um, at you know, evening gatherings, if that's the way you want to do it. However you want to get information, we're happy to provide it to you. 
you don't need to reveal any personal information about any of your clients. We're certainly respectful of the need to keep that private. But if you have questions about the disability process, about how to help your patients, particularly as it relates to the insurance process and filling out these forms. We are always happy to help. We're not going to charge for it. We don't need to have your patient as a client. We don't need you to recommend us. We are happy just to provide that service free of charge because this is information that people need to understand, particularly people in the medical community. And there really is nobody out there that is providing that information. So if you're out there and you need that information, if you're a medical professional, please give us a call. We are more than happy to. And again, outside the hour of the show, right? Uh, how do you do that? one 821 5900 So there you go. Tamar, what's going on with you, pal? Well, look, you know, I think it was worthwhile just to add on a couple of points to James's opening comments around his his client with that physical disability. And here's here's a little bit of add on to it. I think the details around these restrictions and limitations that individuals have are really important. And they're so important to have validated by the medical information. So from what James describes, clearly this individual had, you know, the surgeon commenting on that, but perhaps not the family doctor. I absolutely agree that you want to have sort of one source for all of this info. But I also find generally that there's a glossing over at times after a year or two where a patient has been on disability and the disability insurer keeps asking for regular updates from the doctors about how this individual is doing. It's not, I don't want to suggest that it's complacency, but I think it's almost like, well, yeah, I told you three months ago already insurance company that my patient is limited in this way. But that repetition, the constancy, the continued uh, treatment and attention to the issues one or more that are supporting that disability claim, very important to include in all of that medical information. And, you know, insurers, when they see a physical disability, the fallback position inevitably is, well, after two years, you must be able to do a sitting down job. That is, we see that almost in every initial disability claim that's physical, where there's a physical job and, you know, maybe they've approved for most of the own occupation period. And then it gets into that point in time where they have to transition and make the decision around the any occupation period. And of course, inevitably, they're going to suggest that this individual can sit down and answer phones eight hours a day or some such type job. And so when those details are communicated around sitting tolerances or perhaps other health issues like mental health components, gastrointestinal components, I don't know, there's a whole host of things that can go into it. All of that together can also create a sufficient profile to substantiate that an individual is entitled to continued disability benefits. But the starting point is always the medical information and ensuring that that's comprehensive. Guys, again, reaching out uh, right now is 416-872-1010, text 71010 as well. And to reach uh, James and Tamar on the other side, help at disabilityrights.ca and their phone number anytime. They've got a great team behind them, 1-855-821-5900. We'll get to your phone calls and texts after the short break and dig into our emails as well here on the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Stand by. 
And welcome back. Good to have you here. It is uh, 1.20 on Saturday afternoon. James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP, always here to answer your questions. You can do it a couple different ways. Uh, right here now, anyway, for the remainder of the hour, we're talking about calling in 416-872-1010. Text is 71010 as well. I want to get to our first text for the day, guys. I'll uh, throw this one towards you. Tomorrow first says, if the insurer buys you out, that is pays you a lump sum uh, up to age 65 rather than monthly payments and you feel a bit better years after the payment, can the person work one to five hours weekly and keep the income or would the insurance company ask for part of that income back, claw it back? What do you think, Tamar? Really good question. And so the short answer is no, they can't claw it back typically. And so generally speaking, what ends up happening with a lump sum payment is that the insurance company will actually ask you to sign away any further rights under the policy. So you'll say, okay, I'm accepting this amount of money upfront. Typically it represents some period of what's payable into the future. And in exchange for that, the insurance company will no longer need to adjudicate or assess the entitlement to the disability benefit month over month. And instead they pay you this amount and then they're done. So they close out their file on their end because they've actually got a release usually from the individual to say in exchange for this payment, I don't have any more rights or entitlements under the policy. And, you know, my claim is done. I will not pursue the insurer any further and so on and so forth. And so it stands to reason that if they have given you these amounts up front and that you've executed this release, the relationship of what's payable between the insurer and the claimant has ended. So it can't be that then the insurer comes back five years down the road and says, oh, by the way, we found out that you're making money now. And so we want to recalibrate what we paid you five years ago. And we want to revisit this. Practically speaking, no insurer even has the resources to even think about doing that, nor do you have an obligation to report any income or earnings to an insurer if you no longer are getting payments from them, right? So think about that. There's no ongoing obligation because you've received your benefits upfront and you've released your rights under the policy. The other element of it too, as well, is that the insurance company will somehow take that into consideration in the sense that when you are accepting this lump sum payment up front, there are compromises being had all around. They're not going to pay you 100 cents on the dollar. And the insurer knows that and the claimant knows that. This mm-hmm. is why sometimes having a critical review of what the insurer is actually offering you by way of a lump sum payment is very, very important. We do some of these reviews on behalf of uh, individuals who contact us as well. Because more often than not, we're finding that insurers don't actually want to spend the money to continue adjudicating the claim, or they want to bring it to an end sooner than later. And obviously, they want to save some money. Bottom line, that's what it is. And so it's important before you engage in this kind of process with the insurer that you understand very clearly what's at issue. The dollars and cents are very important for all of these reasons, because if you expect that there is a possibility that you might return back to work in three years, five years, so on, and that's a period of time that you might be paid disability benefits, but the insurer is offering it to you up front, then maybe that is a good deal for you and you want to accept that and you say, okay, you get the insurer off, you know, your, the monkey off your back, so to speak. But it's I'm being general in my comments because really what it comes down to is what's payable 
where you're at from a health perspective, and what decisions can you make in that point in time, both by you and the insurer, about what makes sense on that buyout. So a long answer to a relatively straightforward question. But I'm curious, James, anything to add to that lump sum payment? Well, so one of the things I always like to, to talk around when we're discussing lump sums is the idea of compromise because you know we'll come out insurers as hard as anyone but the reality is if you if you're looking to get a lump sum payout there's no way in any circumstance that an insurer is going to pay you the benefits up until age 65. now sometimes you can get that if there's exposure to damages but leaving that issue aside just looking at the benefits Let's say you're 55 years old and let's say that you have a disability that is clearly permanent, it's objective, and there's no dispute that you're ever going to be able to work again. You're simply not. The insurer knows that they're on the hook. Even in that even in that scenario, even if the insurer knows they're going to have to be making those payments for the next 10 years, they have no incentive to make those payments now. Hmm. There's, no, there's no reason for them to want to give you all of that money today. They would much rather hold on to it and dole it out just on a monthly basis because they can invest that money and make it make money on it by whatever investments they have. And so for their, from their perspective, unless you're prepared to take some kind of compromise on the full value, you're not going to get a payout. And that's fine because the reality is, if you have a policy that doesn't have a cost of living adjustment, and most don't, meaning that your monthly benefit amount stays the same year over year, the reality is your benefit payment becomes less valuable as time goes on. Mm -hmm. yep. If you're getting $3,000 a month this year, it's worth a lot less than getting $3,000 10 years from now. That's just the way that inflation works, and we understand that. And so the first thing you have to look at is applying what we call a discount rate. I'm not going to get into the math of it, but essentially it means you're going to take less money to cover off the future amounts that are owed than you would for an amount that's payable immediately. So that's the first thing that you have to think about. But then there's the risk factor, and that's a lot about what Tamar was talking about. When you're looking at them paying you, Everything now up front, even if it's a really good claim where it's almost impossible that you're ever going to be able to return to work, there is still maybe some theoretical chance that medical science is going to develop in a way over the next 10 years that seven years from now they come up with some new surgery or some pill or whatever that is going to restore your function and allow you to return to work. I, I mean, that may be wildly optimistic depending on your disability, but who knows? And if they pay you now, they lose that opportunity and that is worth something to them. And so if you are agreeing to get paid out now, they're giving that up. And so there is compromise there because that is something that they don't have the benefit of anymore. But the flip side to that, of course, and this is really more the answer to the question, is that you're compromising as well by doing it. You're taking something less than you're likely going to have. And if, let's say, the reverse happened, this person's texting in and asking, what happens if you're able to go back to work earlier yeah. than they've paid you out? But think about the reverse. Let's say that they pay you out for another seven years, but after seven years, you still can't go back to work. They're not going to pay you any further. There's no way they're going to mm -hmm. say, oh, you're still disabled, so we're going to keep paying you. That's never going to happen. And because of that, the flip side also has to be true. If they're not going to pay you beyond the duration for which the lump sum would cover, then they also can't possibly expect to get a refund 
before that period of time is done right. if you're able to go back to work. Right. Because what you're doing when you come to a lump sum agreement is you're weighing risk. You're weighing the risk on both sides and you're trying your best to figure out how far into the future. And by necessity, it is virtually impossible for, for you to negotiate something that's going to be exactly right to the day. You're probably going to be better a little bit earlier or a little bit later than what you've agreed on. And both sides just have to accept that and then move on. And so when you have these lump sum deals, they are meant to be full and final, ending the relationship in a way where you don't have to worry about them. They don't have to worry about you. That's it. It's over. Now, there are exceptions. There are ways to come to a, you know, a halfway settlement, so to speak, that allows you to maintain a relationship that might apply in certain circumstances. But for most people, it's not what we're talking about. And I echo what Tamar had said before. If your insurer is approaching you, if you're getting your benefits and your insurer is approaching you about a lump sum payment and you're not sure, give us a call. We're happy to take a look at it, um, and certainly we can provide you some quick advice as to whether or not it's an even reasonable offer, and you can go from there. Guys, let's dive into the emails after a short break, so stand by for that. George, thank you so much. Yours is up first, so we'll get to that, and you still got time to make a phone call live and join the show. Be that uh, be that fourth voice on air, right? 416-872-1010 is how you call into the show live, and if you want to send a text along like the one we just dealt with, you can go to 71010 to cover off that. We'll continue. Disability Law Show, this is the Bell Talk Radio Network. Welcome back indeed. John Scholes here, James Farman, Tamara Gopi, and the team. Or the band is back together in uh, 2023. Good to have you here with us. 135 on Saturday. Finally, some sunshine. Good time to continue what we're doing. The emails, which we're going to get to here momentarily, is help at disabilityrights.ca. But you have the option of calling into the show live. We're, uh, we're here, ready to answer phone calls, 416-872-1010. And also texting at 71010 as well. Um, I want to get to, before we get to the emails, George, you're standing by i got it but I want to get to another text that just came in guys because they're they're live and they're, they're they're obviously listening um we've talked about lump sum payments from the insurance company previous you guys uh gave your details on that before the break but the follow-up text is our lump sums offers negotiable that is can one make a counter offer is it okay for someone to approach the insurer and ask for a lump sum or will it uh will it go south on you if you if you end up doing something like that what do you guys think So this is a really good question, and I think it's important before I answer to make a distinction here. There is a very big difference between dealing with lump sums and lump sum offers while you are still getting your benefits versus after you've been cut off and have brought a lawsuit. When you've been cut off and you've brought a lawsuit, you've hired a lawyer, and let's say I'm negotiating on your behalf, there, you know, when you get to mediation, there will be offers going both ways, and it's just a very different scenario. The power dynamic is completely different. When you are on claim, though, if your insurer approaches you mm-hmm. and asks whether you are interested in a lump sum, I don't have any issue with them doing that. By the way, you know, if they're approaching you, then you're not suggesting to them any uh, desperation to resolve it, or you know, suggesting that you want to resolve it and having them maybe think you're about to go back to work which are two big issues with approaching your insurer if they haven't talked to you about it. If they've approached you, I don't have an issue with at least considering what they're offering. Now, in almost every case where I've seen an insurer make a lump sum offer, the offer they're making is certainly on the low end of, at best on the low end of what's reasonable and often well lower than what is reasonable. 
it's very rare that I see an insurer make an offer to someone who is on claim that I think is fair, that hits the sweet spot. It can happen, but it's rare that I see it. They're usually taking a, or offering a significant discount and you have to expect that's what, that's what they're going to do. You know, for them, again, it's just as easy for them to just pay the monthly payments for the next 10 years and keep, hold on to the money as long as possible and invest it and make their own money off of it than it is to pay out now. So there has to be an incentive for them to do it. So what happens if they make you the offer and you look at it, maybe you call us for an opinion and we say, no, this is too low. It should be at least X. So what do you do then? Well, if they've made you the offer, then you're certainly free to make a counter proposal, say, no, that's too low. If you're willing to go to X or Y or whatever it is, then I would do it. I don't, I, you know, there's no reason for you not to make a counter proposal if you're not prepared to take what, it, what they're offering. But I would caution you that it has been my experience that in these scenarios, insurers generally aren't willing to negotiate. They're not willing to consider paying a higher amount. It can happen, I suppose. I mean, you know, in any negotiation, it's really up to both sides to determine what is going to be in their best interest. So it may be the case in, the, in your particular circumstances that the insurer will be prepared to negotiate and you haven't lost anything by making a counter proposal. But that is very different than approaching your insurer before they've made that suggestion. And I've already alluded to why, but if you are getting your benefits, you have a long-term, maybe personal, uh, sorry, permanent disability that will prevent you from working until you're 65 and you're pretty confident in that. And you're thinking to yourself, well, why don't I just approach my insurer? I'll make them an offer that saves them a little bit of money and maybe we'll get it resolved. If you do that, they will almost certainly interpret that in one of two ways. Either they're going to interpret that as you are in a financial crisis and are desperate to get a lump sum now, in which case they will see you as being vulnerable and offer you less, or they will believe that you're hiding something from them, mm -hmm. that you are feeling better, that you are you found a job opportunity and you're just looking to wrap this up on a full and final basis so that you can go back to work and you can get both. Either way, however they interpret it, it is not going to lead to anything that's going to be anywhere near the value of your claim. And in doing that, as, as you know, we were talking about before, it's going to put a bit of a target on your back. The insurer is now going to be like, well, why is this person reaching out to us now? What is going on? And that may well lead to them hiring an investigator to do surveillance or asking you to see one of their doctors for an independent medical evaluation. But rarely is it going to lead to an offer that is anywhere close to the value that you're looking for. So I would not recommend, if you are on claim, you're getting your benefits, I would not recommend reaching out to the insurer and proposing a lump sum settlement because it is so unlikely to get what you want and it is opening up the door for all sorts of negative consequences. Tamar? I don't have anything to add. Would you believe? I mean, I, I think it's it's true. I mean, it's so. Yeah, I talk a lot, so I, I believe it. I I agree with I agree with James. Um, in my experience, is exactly the same. That typically the insurer will sort of take it. It's a take it or leave it type proposal when you're still on claim. 
they do the math, they come up with a number, they're very rigid about it. If they can buy you off, they will. Uh, and this is why it's so important to get some advice before you sign away your rights under the policy. Got another text, but I promised George we get to his question first, guys. So let's do, uh, let's do George again. The emails help at disabilityrights.ca. George says, I suffered a mental breakdown last year due to my boss and all the extra work and stress I had at work. I had some trouble getting my short-term benefits approved, but once I did, I managed to transition to long-term. With the support of my family doctor and psychologist, I've been on a gradual return to work plan for the past few months. I was getting paid for LTD and my salary, but before I was able to get the full-time, I was fired. This triggered me all over again, and I'm back to massive depression and anxiety. My doctors advise the insurance company of this, but the insurer is refusing my LTD claim. Now what do I do? This is a really tough situation, George, but really highlights you know, the, the areas of expertise that we have at our firm, right? This has some disability law components and some employment law components. And let's start with that feature of it. What George is describing to us is, look, the LTD claim is being refused, even though I have now experienced a resurgence of my health issues, uh, a recurrence is really what it is under the disability policy. Because most of these policies will say, you know, they want to encourage you to actually get back to work of course, because they're paying you less or not at all. But there is always a section that says, if your health issues prevent you once more to continue working, and that happens within a window of time from a prior claim, let's say typically around six months, then the policy is activated again to pay the disability benefit. So from the immediate point of view, my advice to George is he's got to get that medical information over to the insurer to say, this is the recurrence claim. I'm making a recurrence claim insurance company and see, you know, if he hasn't done this already, actually get something in writing from the insurer on their position on whether or not they're going to continue the LTD benefit under the recurrence provision. But it really does come down to the strength of the medical. And we were talking about this at the top of the show. So it is important that it's not just simply a question of, just because he got fired, he's not working. But in fact, it's the health issues that are preventing him from working, regardless of his uh, employability. So having that explained by a doctor, very critical when you're do- talking about these kinds of recurrence claims. The other important feature to this is George only has a certain window of time where he can actually assert another LTD claim while he still has coverage. Because once you get terminated, there's the statute allows for some period of time for your benefits to continue, but they will come to a point where your coverage ends. And so if you are asserting any sort of disability claim, whether it's a recurrence or otherwise, whether it's a new health issue altogether, you want to make sure that you're asserting that claim within the time frame that you still have LTD or STD coverage under your plan, because those things come to an end from the employment side of things. So what to do on the employment side? I mean, I think maybe we should pick this up after our next break, yep. uh, but it is the disability law show. So I wanted to address that part of uh, George's email first. You bet. Stand by, George. We'll get to the other half of that after break. And maybe James will have some comments in two. And we'll uh, we'll keep moving on. Again, it is help at disabilityrights.ca. And to call in 416-872-1010. We'll continue disability law show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Yep, we are back. It is 150. So you got some time to call in still. Uh, 416-872-1010. Email help 
at disabilityrights.ca. Tomorrow, I wanted to pick up on George's email. And before we get on to another uh, another text that just came in at 71010. So feel free to continue, pal. We talked about the, you know, going off and not being able to get back on LTD Absolutely. when he, uh, he got sick again. But uh, continue talking about what you're talking about. So what I wanted to touch on was really the employment component of it, because obviously this is the other area that we specialize in at the firm. And you can see how much in overlap there can be between the two practice areas. And I think George's email really highlights the importance of having lawyers that understand both sides of the fence. And mm-hmm. here's why. A lot of the time with these disability policies, there will be a component that says, look, we'll pay you X dollars for LTD, but if you have access to other sources of income or come into other sources of income, we get to take a credit for that. We get to deduct that against what's payable for LTD. So assuming that George is entitled to further LTD benefits from the insurer, my vote is to actually pursue that claim first before you even consider what you're going to do with the untimely termination of your um, employment for that exact reason that you want to maximize those dollars and not necessarily pursue the employer right away if there's a basis to do that in order to maximize a compensation that you might be entitled to against the disability insurer. And so it's strategic, but it's an important one because those rights really supersede, I think, in my mind at this stage, at this point in time where George is, where his disability is the primary focus and that should be the primary claim moving forward. Having said that, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm saying that the employer gets a pass here. In fact, the fact that George was terminated while he was attempting to return back to work does potentially give rise to a potential human rights component here, right? Did his disability or his inability to resume full-time work, did that impact the decision-making of the employer to terminate him? And, you know, it could be that it was a very little part of it. Perhaps there was other reasons. Maybe it was restructuring. Maybe it was something else or no reason at all. But either way, the fact that there's a component of this, that there that the employer knows that he has a disability and intending to return back to work, there's some fairly clear law that says even if 1% of the decision had to do with his disability to terminate him, well, that mm. exposes the employer to a human rights uh, damages claim. So uh, the long and short of it is I would pursue the disability claim first and then absolutely consider whether or not there's a benefit to pursuing the employer as well. James. Well, you know, as anybody who follows the, you know, our social media feeds and who's watching what's trending on Twitter knows, people who listen to our show love a little scrap. It was trending the last time we disagreed on something on something as well. So I have to disagree with you on one point tomorrow. Before the break, we were talking about George's email and George, just so everyone is up to speed here, was getting paid his LTD and was on a return to work plan and was building up to it when he was fired. And so that's sort of where we picked it up. And Tamara was talking about looking at this as a recurrence claim and his entitlement to his benefits. Now, I don't disagree that George is entitled to benefits. I, we're in agreement on that. But where I disagree is treating this as a recurrence claim. I would not. I would actually look at this as a continuation of the benefits that he was still receiving. As, as I understand it from the fact pattern anyway, uh, George was still getting his LTD benefits at the point that he was fired and his benefits were, were cut off. And so if that is the case, the way that I look at this is even though George was in the process of going back to work, that doesn't mean he's no longer disabled. And the proof of that is that his insurer was still paying his benefits. 
if he was no longer disabled under the policy, the insurer would have cut him off. Mm-hmm. And even if he had gone back to, the, to work to the point where his insurer had stopped paying benefits and you are engaging the recurrence, I still don't know that I would necessarily accept that he was no longer disabled. It is certainly well within contemplation in a policy that someone can be physically at work and still disabled from work. They may not be effectively doing their job. In other words, they may be trying to build up to a point where they can do it, but simply not there yet. And I've had situations where I've had clients go back to work after getting LTD, but they were so limited in what they could do. And they just had an employer that was prepared to go to unbelievable lengths in an attempt to to, to uh, accommodate that they were really in no in no way, shape, or form uh, not disabled anymore. They, their dis- disability absolutely continued, even though they were, in fact, at work. And that's what I would be arguing here for George. He was still getting paid the LTD even while at work. I say he's still disabled. But otherwise, I do agree with everything Tamar said, particularly as it relates to you know how you would handle the employment aspect of it and why it's so important, so important to have representation that understands both aspects of it. Anyway, those are my thoughts. All righty, let's get on to this uh, this text we got, Dan, guys. Again, 71010 is the text number anytime. It says, I am on LTD and my employer required me to apply for CPP disability benefits as part of the LTD application process. CPP denied my claim, stating that my condition isn't prolonged or severe. Now my insurance company has forced me to appeal the CPP decision. Is this common with other employees? Are appeals uh, to CPP ever successful? So that's a great question. The, let me answer the last part of it first. Are, are uh, appeals to CPP disability ever successful? That's an absolutely yes. Yeah. In fact, CPP disability appeals, the last time I saw numbers on this, it was 60% of appeals for CPP disability are successful. That is, of course, very different than appeals for long-term disability, which we will talk about every single episode of this show, that it is almost always a waste of time. CPP disability, very different. Appeals to CPP disability can be successful. Uh, Are you required to appeal a denial of your CPP disability under an LTD policy? Well, you want to take a look at what the language of the policy says. Sometimes the insurer will be entitled to make a deduction of your CPP disability benefits, whether you've applied or not. And if you have applied and have been denied, but have not appealed, they may still be entitled to make a deduction of the value of their estimate of your CPP disability benefits but they may not. And so you want to take a look at the language of the policy and see what's required there. But even if your policy doesn't explicitly require you to apply or to appeal if you're denied your CPP disability, even if it is something where you theoretically can say to your insurer, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not required under my policy. Consider whether there's a reason to take that position because there is really no disadvantage to applying for CPP disability, especially if you're approved. If you're approved, you're gonna get that money from the government. Yes, it's an offset against what you're entitled to under your LTD policy, but it also makes it much more difficult for your insurer to cut you off. There is a tax consequence, but if you also apply for the disability tax credit, it's gonna offset that. And if you don't agree to make the application or you don't appeal, 
your insurer may look at that as a violation of the policy. That may not be correct, but if they look at it that way, they cut you off, your benefits stop, and then you have no choice but to come to us and to bring a legal claim. Better to stay on claim as long as you can. And with that, we are complete for the hour. Thank you so much for your correspondence, your text and emails. You can keep them coming now the show is done because you can always reach out to Tamar and James, respectively. How do you do it by phone? 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And you can also go to mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show right here on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 